Well, good morning. It's a privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. Um, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I've been warned that after 20 years of working with university students, I need to speak at about three-quarter speed. And so I, I will do my best to, to slow down. Um, we'll see what happens, though. Um, and so <clears throat> Dom has been working us through 2 Corinthians for the past month. He's really been highlighting the now and not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. You know, in Jesus, life has broken in and is swallowing up death. And the best is yet to come. Dom has also been highlighting the many ways that the gospel redeems humanity's inward curve and self-centeredness. God gives us a new heart that empowers us to live other-centered, self-giving, sacrificial lives. So that's what we've been talking about quite a bit for the last month or six weeks. But today, I want to take us to 1 Peter, um, another New Testament epistle, and try to build on some of these themes a little bit more. And specifically, what I want to draw out for us is what does it mean to live faithfully as a Christian amidst difficulty, whatever that might be? What does it look like to live faithfully during these now and not yet times? That's where we want to go today, and I'm excited to share some thoughts with you. So I'd love to open our time with prayer, and then we're going to dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you that to you all hearts are open, all thoughts and intentions are known. Nothing is hidden from your sight. And I thank you that you love us anyway. I thank you that you are with us. You are right here in this place. And Holy Spirit, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you because they illuminate what is true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So because we're shifting, I'm going to try to like drop you quickly into 1 Peter. Um, and so 1 Peter is a letter written in the mid-60s A.D., I mean, it's really a rich pastoral letter uh, written to people in exile, whether they were physically exiled from Jerusalem or just living kind of amid, you know, Christian pockets amidst secular people. It's less clear, um, at least in my reading. Um, but he really is building on what, how, how to live as they experience persecution or difficulty. And the, the letter is five chapters, and it's kind of circular in a really beautiful way. It's theme and variation. He states some things and goes back to them. And he states some more things, then goes back to them and back and forth. And so what I'd like to do is try to give you four core um, kind of themes that come out in all five chapters. But we're only going to look at chapter one today. Don't worry, we're not going to be here all day. And so we're going to go through chapter one. We're going to look at kind of the three themes that I'm going to share with you. But I really invite you to, to, to read all of 1 Peter because you'll, you'll begin to see like, oh, he hits it again. Oh, he hits it again. But as, I, as I've studied 1 Peter, here are kind of three central themes. Let's see if this thing works. Hey, it does. So the first is this. As, we, as, as Peter draws out some themes, here's three of them. First, difficulty, struggle, and suffering are normative Christian experiences and are tools that God uses to accomplish his purposes. Second theme is how we respond or engage in the difficulty, struggling, and suffering really matters. And there are holy and unholy ways to engage. And the third theme that he really hits on hard is knowing the end of the story, as well as the one writing the story, this is what enables perseverance amidst the difficulty. 
So three themes, difficulty, struggle, and suffering are normative Christian experiences and are tools that God uses to accomplish his purposes. How we engage in difficulty, struggle, and suffering matters. And knowing the end of the story, as well as the one writing the story, is what enables perseverance. So what I'm going to do is read 1 Peter out loud to you. So you're welcome to follow along in your Bible if you want. There's a, there's a Bible in the front. Um, but I'm just going to read the whole chapter. Um, it, hopefully that doesn't seem too long, but it's either reading the scriptures or listening to me talk. So we'll start with the scriptures. Um, and being in the plus 40 crowd, things have gotten a lot smaller. So here's 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So I'd love just to kind of unpack these three themes uh, coming out of First Peter. So the, remember, the first theme is that difficulty, struggle, and suffering are normative Christian experiences. And as Dom has been highlighting so well, we live in these in-between times. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is broken in. We taste the goodness and love of God now. We experience some healing and some freedom now. We belong to God and to one another. And yet, things are not as they ought to be. We still get sick. We die. We say unkind things. We do not get along. Everyone does not yet worship God. Christians are often thought of as foolish or bigoted or antiquated or the problem with society. Things break. I hurt my wife and my children and my friends. And worst of all, slugs and bugs still eat my garden. Longtime navigator and author Jerry Bridges often said, life is difficult. And this is the mark of the in-between times, the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of darkness is passing away, but it is still present and has effect on us. But as Christians, we have both the perspective and the resources to face the difficulty. Peter begins his letter by reminding these exiles that their situation was according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. See if we can get this up here so you can read along with me. Thanks, Sam. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification or process of being or made, you know, process of being made holy or set apart. So that's sanctification, the process of being made holy and set apart. So in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. So none of this difficulty is by accident or outside of God's sight or outside of his control or outside of his purposes. He knows, and he is using it to form in us and form us as a distinct, holy, whole, mature people, ones who know how to obey Jesus no matter what. The sprinkling with his blood part merely means the acceptance of the new covenant, the sign of receiving his cleansing, like in the Old Testament. So Peter goes on and writes, you can get me forward one there, Sam? Thanks. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Life is difficult. We do experience sorrow and suffering and disappointment. And God knows and cares and uses it. So I was reflecting on tests and trials and what they do, and all of a sudden I realized they serve multiple functions. Tests reveal what we know and don't know, what we've learned and what we haven't yet learned. And this is often their function in a classroom setting. Ask any school teacher here. Tests and trials also display what someone or something can do. If you enter your car in a time trial, you are displaying what it, it, the car and the driver are capable of speed-wise. How fast can the driver get around the track? Or if you're Luke, how fast can you get to the top of Mount Washington? Tests and trials can also train or strengthen. When your muscles are regularly exercised, they become stronger or more resilient and capable of bearing greater loads. 
When gold is heated, it becomes malleable as well as purified. It's able to be shaped in a way that it was formerly not shaped. And this is the metaphor that Peter uses to help us understand what trials do for us as followers of Jesus. They reveal where we already do trust and are applying the goodness of God and his gospel. Trials also reveal where we may be trusting in something else to deal with our sin and suffering. Trials also reveal more fully what God and his new life in you is capable of doing. Things that you could never see or experience any other way, trials reveal. Childbirth is a little bit like that. A woman has no idea how much her body is capable of until she goes through the joy and difficulty of it. I would say dad is pretty stretched through that process too. And God, through trials, is expanding your capacity and maturity and solidity as he trains you to lean into him. This is faith, applied trust and knowledge of God. We have to consider when it's costly, will I lie or will I tell the truth? Will God protect me? Will I love my neighbor and serve him even when he doesn't reciprocate or seem to even like me? Will I forgive when I've been wronged even if the injustice feels so great? Or will I choose to slander and malign and hold on to my anger? And these are all very real temptations, and we face them every day. We have choices to make. Learning to lean more fully into God is something that I've been learning quite a bit about personally over the past few years. First, I was tasked with leading our teams of campus ministers through COVID and all the complexities that it held. And more recently, I've been mediating and leading through staff conflicts. Yes, Christian ministers don't always see eye to eye. Yes, Christian ministers don't always get along. There have been many days after the umpteenth phone call or Zoom call where I have just had enough and want to shout, can't you all just get along? Can't you all just grow up and work it out? Maybe some of you have been there too. And the answer is no, they can't. Because shepherding and leadership is a necessary function for Christian maturity. And that's the job God has asked me to do. And so I've done my best to lean in. But through it, I'm learning to pray the Psalms more, learning to express my emotions to God, let them out. I've been practicing learning to receive his care and not looking for it other places. Through these things, I'm learning how to become a better and more godly leader of people. I'm learning how to speak the truth in love like Jesus in order to bring resolve. The Lord has been using these difficulties to increase my capacity as a person. He's also been using him to show where I don't trust him or his purposes or his ways, especially in my fatigue and frustration. I don't know, I don't know about you, but that's where my worst self comes out. God has been teaching me what it means to truly take refuge in him when I cannot bear another day. He's teaching me a method for living beyond cynicism or a grin and bear it attitude. And I'm thankful for that most days. So this brings me to my second point and what Peter continues to hit on over and over again, and that being how we struggle and how we engage with the suffering or difficulty really matters. And it matters to God and it matters to others. So Peter continues, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, 
Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And then a little bit later he writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So as you experience difficulty as God's son, as God's daughter, commit to living out the family value of holiness. Or maybe said a little bit differently, if holiness has lost its definition in your mind, commit to living a life as a set-apart one, set apart to and for God, because that's what holiness really is. Your life and your dealings with yourself, with others, with money, with time, with work, with rest, with play, with relationships, with parenting, with friendships, with politics, with gender, all things, these things are meant to be shaped by what God values and what God says. This is the kingdom way and what it means, to me, what it means when Jesus is Lord of your life. Jesus has permission to speak into and shape everything. And as I've already mentioned, difficulty is where what we really believe comes out and where our choices really matter. Will we commit to trusting God and living and acting in his way? Or will we choose the path of efficiency or expediency or selfishness or safety or convenience or self-protection? These temptations and models of living are everywhere and they are alluring. This is what Peter calls the passions of your former ignorance. It's the old way of doing things, the way the world works without a connection to God. But you, my friends, were ransomed from these ways, bought, with, bought by God with blood, Jesus' blood. That's how much you are valued. That's how much you are loved. It's this God who is asking for your allegiance and has proved himself trustworthy over and over and over again. Because you are loved and redeemed and have an eternal hope, not just a temporary one, you are called to a different life and different lifestyle. A new lifestyle, one governed by a perfect ruler who knows how humanity is meant to function best. So as you face and walk through difficulty, hope in God, not your own self-protective efforts. And as you do that personally, Peter also calls us to commit to loving one another. Why? So I don't know about you, but when things get hard, my patience for people and my graciousness towards them are often the first things that go out the window. But when God saved us, he put us in a new family, his family. He didn't save us in isolation. In this family is where we continue to work out our salvation. It's in this family that we learn more about what it means to be healthily connected to others. It's in this family that we can draw support amidst difficulty and suffering. But that doesn't just happen magically. It actually takes intentionality and it takes work. So what does this both holiness and loving one another look like practically? So again, holiness is set-apartness, set apart to and for God. Holiness looks like God's people living out the Ten Commandments that he gave to his people on Mount Sinai. Ten rules for human flourishing. Jesus furthers this uh, in terms of family values by preaching his Sermon on the Mount, giving kingdom ethics. That's found in Matthew 5 to 7. Holiness is expressed as we mature in the fruit of the Spirit that Paul outlines in Galatians 5. 
This is holiness, living these ways, the set-apartness of God's people, living among secular people, but living out God's values as the way life works best. Holiness is learning, knowing, and acting on the word of God as the final authority in all matters of life. Holiness is learning and discerning the voice of the Holy Spirit who teaches, convicts, and prompts you and me. Holiness is getting caught up in fulfilling Jesus' great commission to make disciples who are submitted learners, apprentice to Jesus himself. Fulfilling the great commission is central to your life's work. To be holy is to be an imitator of God and all that he longs to accomplish in this world. So that's a little bit about holiness, but what about loving one another? Loving one another begins with understanding that you're one part of a larger body. You have been endowed with particular gifts whose collection and connection to others cause the body to function well. Paul outlines this for us in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. And as a member of a local body or a local family of believers, each of us is to offer his or her gift to one another in service to God. Paul writes that this is how the body grows and builds itself up in love. Being connected to one another enables flourishing amidst difficulty because some of you have gifts of encouragement, others mercy, others compassion, others service, helps, and many others. Being connected to one another in a local body helps us to reject worldliness and embrace holiness. You are not doing this alone. Loving one another allows us to learn about God together, belonging to God and one another, sharing life together, committing to holy, set-apart living, and expressing gospel love to one another is how we walk faithfully in and through life in these now and not yet times, and is especially meaningful in times of difficulty. A great question to reflect on is, how are you doing at linking arms of giving and receiving this kind of love with those in the local body? Remember, as Dom has been preaching about, this is the other-centered, sacrificial, um, giving lifestyle. And also remember, this is giving out of who you are and what God has entrusted to you. As other scriptures teach, if your gift is hospitality, be hospitable. If your gift is service, then serve. If it's mercy, practice mercy. Offer those things to one another out of who you are and what God has entrusted to you. Kind of the third point here, um, knowing the end of the story as well as the one who is writing the story is the final piece of helping us to persevere and probably the most critical one. This is a strong theme that's all through 1 Peter, one that he, he, he comes back to and weaves into everything. As you see, when he opens the letter right out of the gate, he writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The end of the story is this. God and his kingdom wins. Death is swallowed up by life final judgment comes. The redeemed children of God inherit his kingdom with renewed bodies to enjoy fellowship with him forever. 
This is our final salvation. In the meantime, God's power that raised Jesus from the dead serves as an example of what is to come. The powerful God that not even death can overcome or defeat, this is our God, the one that we're following. This is the God in whom we are trusting to bring, to bring the end of the story about. And so as we tell and retell this story's ending, hope grows in our hearts and minds. As we tell and retell the story's beginning and middle, God's creation of all things, his redemption plan through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We see his faithfulness to every generation, and that includes ours. As we meditate on all these truths so that they sink into our souls, our suffering and difficulty begin to find their place in a much bigger story. This enables us to keep going. Pain, sorrow, suffering, injustice, besetting sins, all things other than God and his words are finite and therefore they will have an ending. This too shall pass. I love the lines in the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, and I was even tempted to ask Carol and Frank to sing it for us, but that is a Christmas carol and that has passed. It may be familiar to you, but these two lines have meant a lot to me. Um, penned by Henry Long, uh, uh, Longfellow, he writes this, and in despair I bowed my head there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God's not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. So my dear friends, this is the good news to you and is the good news to me. The more that we press into this story's end, the more able we are to able to handle the middle parts. Here's one more way to think about it. During the lockdown period of COVID, our family set, uh, set out to read the four-volume children's story called The Wingfeather Saga. Maybe some of you have watched it. Oop, sorry, Sam, jumped on you. Thanks. And I was skeptical at first, having mixed enjoyment of the fantasy genre. But I knew of the author, which is Andrew Peterson, and he, he has written many thoughtful uh, musical pieces that draw forth Christian themes. The books were also being compared to the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings, both of which have been deeply meaningful to me and my family. And so we dove in and could barely put them down. Throughout the stories, the characters faced immense difficulties, multiple close calls, loss, and suffering. We genuinely didn't know what was going to happen or how this would resolve. But we knew that it would. Somehow and in some way, justice would come. Redemption would happen. Wrongs would be righted. The world would be renewed. You see, we trusted the author's intent in his worldview that informed his writing. This allowed each of us to hang on through the ups and downs, the mistakes and the tragedies on each page. We knew the end, generally speaking, and we trusted the author. How much more with God? We follow a God who spoke and all things came into being. We have a God who forgave the original humans after the rebellion and made a way for them to return to relationship with him. We have a God who has been working out this plan to redeem and renew all things at the very end. We know the end of the story, generally speaking, and we have a God who is not far off, but very near. 
one who became one of us, a human being just like you and just like me. Jesus lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we all deserve. But that wasn't the end of the story either. He defeated death and rose again and now gives this resurrection life to you and me, now and not yet. And one day he will return and make all things new and take us to be with him to experience life to its full. So my dear friends, that is your story and that is my story and that is God's story. And so for now we live in this in-between time. We've tasted a little bit of this new life. We've experienced some miraculous. We've even heard God speak to us. We've felt and experienced love and forgiveness. We are learning to love one another and to serve one another, to use our gifts, to offer ourselves to one another out of who God has made us to be. And the best is yet to come. And the suffering and the difficulty we experience now, yes, it sure does hurt. And yes, it sure is bad. And yes, it sure is confusing at times. But it is also temporary and used by God to refine, deepen, and mature us. In classic C.S. Lewis fashion, this quote was inscribed on the flyleaf of a book he was reading. Just kind of off the cuff, this is what came out. It is not an abstraction called humanity that is to be saved. It is you, yourself. Yourself, not another. It is your soul, and in some sense, not fully understood, even your body, that was made for the high and holy place. And that you are, your sins accepted, every fold and crease and nook and cranny of your individuality, destined from all eternity to fit God as a glove fits a hand. And that intimate particularity, which you can hardly grasp yourself, much less communicate to your fellow creatures, is no mystery to him. He made those ins and outs that he might fill them. He gave you just so curious a life because it is the key designed to unlock the door of all the myriad doors in him. So my dear friends, do not be surprised by the trials when they come. Commit to doing good while leaning into God and to one another, knowing that the end of the story and the one writing it is trustworthy and true. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the way that you use difficulty and trial, struggle and suffering to reveal where we are in the story, to strengthen us and to shape us. Thank you for the ways that you do not leave us but come to us in it. Thank you that the best is yet to come. And I do pray for each of us that your reality, your goodness, your trueness, your redemption now and forevermore would, would permeate our hearts and minds, that we would live as a holy people set apart to and for you, and that this would go to the ends of the earth as your salt and your life, making disciples of all nations as you long to see happen, Lord Jesus. So we entrust all these things to you and ask for your help in it. In Jesus' name. Amen.